morning, everyone. We all doing well? So good to be with you again this morning. I ask your uh, in, um, patience with me. We're talking about patience. So you have to be patience with me, or patient with me. My uh, voice is a little slow in getting started this morning, so um, you might have to bear with me in that. Let's turn to Galatians 5 as we continue the theme we began last night, which is what does it mean to grow in godliness? How can we be sanctified? How can we become more Christ-like? And we're using the fruit of the Spirit to kind of guide us in that. Um, And as we said uh, last night, uh, the way to become most like Christ is to look most often to Christ. And so we're going to continue that um, this this morning uh, in Sunday school, in worship, in morning and evening as well, as we look to the character of Christ in the Gospels and see a perfect harmony with what we find in Galatians 5, 22 through 23. We are actually going to save uh, the first three uh, fruits for our next session, so we're going out of order. I trust that you won't be too confused, okay? I'm telling you now, we're not starting at the beginning, but it'll, it'll be okay. Stick with me. I'll, I'll lead us safely through um, Galatians 5, 22 and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. So our aim is to see these attributes of patience, kindness, and goodness this morning uh, displayed in the life of Christ and then to have them displayed in our lives. And that's the, um, that, that's the proper order, the, the biblical principle that... We hammered home last, last night is we become what we behold. Um, you see that in 2 Corinthians 3, right? We all with unveiled faces are beholding the glory of the Lord. And because we behold his glory, we are transformed from one degree of what? Glory to the next. We behold his glory and we become glorious. Um, and that's, that's ultimately uh, what, we, what will happen on the last day. Right now it's happening slowly but surely. We're becoming like Jesus as we look to him with the eye of faith. But guess what happens on the last day when we see him with the eye of flesh in our resurrected state? Uh, look with me if you, if you don't mind. First John 3. I just want you to know I'm not, I'm not making up this, this idea we become what be, we behold. Just because it sounds good and it's easy to remember. This is straight from the scriptures. First John 3, verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Why? Because we shall see him as he is. We become what we behold. What's John saying? We are God's children now. We belong to him now. You really are a Christian right now, but what we are going to be, what we're meant to be, it hasn't yet fully come out yet. It's not fully appeared. You and I aren't what we are going to be in the new heavens and the new earth. When will it happen? When we see Jesus the eye of fa- with the eye of flesh. Right now, we look to him with the eye of faith. We read his word, and um, we uh, pray that the Lord applies that to our hearts, and we become more conformed to his image. So we're looking at patience, kindness, and goodness. Any attempt to cover uh, multiple fruits of the Spirit in a single talk is necessarily going to have to lack some nuance and depth, but, you know, that's just what's demanded in a 
weekend conference where we have four talks but nine virtues. We're going to have to focus in on some and, and not so much on others. Um, fortunately, by God's design, these virtues are meant to be studied together. And when you take a group of them together, you actually, I think, you'll, you learn a little something that you wouldn't have if you just honed in on um, them on their own. You kind of see how they correspond to one another. So let's look back to Galatians 5 and uh, recall that it, it does have indeed two lists. There's first a list of vices before the list of virtues that's given. And the, the, there's the, uh, the fruit of the Spirit, but it is, it is contrasted against the works of the flesh. And the plurality there, works, plural, of the flesh is... Um, instructive for us, it reminds us of the competing desires of our sin. Those vices that are listed, they're not a team. They don't work together. Uh, there's division in the works of the flesh, even as division is listed there as one of the vices. But on the other hand, Paul uses the singular fruit. He doesn't say the fruits of the Spirit, but he does say the fruit. It's a collective singular uh, certainly, but it's still a singular, and it shows that there's a harmony with these virtues. They're not at war with each other. There's peace in these virtues, even as peace is one of the virtues. So when we receive uh, the one spirit, we receive his fruit. Uh, so these aren't, you know, one pastor said these aren't nine separate jewels in the Christian life. These are actually nine facets of one sparkling diamond of the Christian life. They all go together. So we're looking at the fruits of patience, kindness, and goodness, which belong to the singular fruit of the Spirit. And some scholars have even noted that these three form a sort of triad uh, among the virtues. Actually, some, some scholars have divided the, the fruit of the Spirit into three groups of three. The first three, love, joy, and peace, are said to be, by some, Godward virtues, virtues that have to do primarily with our relationship to God. Um, and that's what we're going to talk about in the sermon in, in a little bit, love, joy, and peace. The, the um, final three, um, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, are inward virtues. They have to do sort of with our, our internal temperature and what, what, uh, what we are like when, when nobody's around, what kind of character we have. Um, and then the middle three are manward virtues. So you have Godward virtues, inward virtues, and then these are manward or social virtues. How do we interact with other people? John Stott is one of those uh, aforementioned scholars who sees this division. He says, these are social virtues, manward rather than Godward in their direction. Patience is long-suffering towards those who aggravate or persecute. Kindness is a question of our disposition and goodness of words and deeds. So we are kind towards other people, and it, that is expressed in acts of goodness. I don't know how firmly I want to press that distinction. Like I said, all nine of these go together, but there's probably something to be said, and since I had to divvy up the talks, I'm going to go with it for today. So we're going to say, yeah, that's right. The first three are Godward, the middle three are manward, and the last three are, are more inward. Um, so this three we're looking at today, here's how I think it's helpful to think of them. They are helpful in considering how we behave towards other people, but not just any other people. Here it is. This is how we deal with people who are difficult. This is how we deal with difficult people. Raise your hand if you have a difficult person in your life. Every hand goes up because you're all difficult, right? We all have to deal with ourselves. And, of course, if you are 
married, if you uh, have a, um, uh, a co-worker, if you're in school, if you ever have had to interact with another sinner, hand goes up. We deal with difficult people, right? Uh, and that makes sense that these are about how we deal with difficult people because you only have to be patient with people who are annoying, right? Overbearing, uh, needy. You do not need to be told to be kind to people who are kind to you. You don't need to be told to do good to people that you expect will do good in return. You remember Jesus saying something about that? Luke chapter 6, verse 27. I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, don't withhold your tunic. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. And here it is. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? Even sinners do the same. Right? So the Holy Spirit doesn't need to work in my life. To, to let me be kind to people that I expect will be kind in return or who are easygoing for me or, or to do something nice to somebody who I think will do something nice to me. That's not the fruit of the Spirit that we're talking about. This is the kind of sanctity that the Spirit of God works in our hearts. It is patient, it is kind, and it is good to people that maybe irritate us and irk us. Um, so here's some definitions for you if you find that helpful. What is patience and kindness and goodness? I want to propose that patience, as we find it in the Bible, it's, it's um, maybe better understood with two other terms, forbearance or long-suffering. I really like the term long-suffering. It's more of a King James kind of term, but it gets the idea perfectly, right? There's some suffering involved, and not just for a little bit, but over a long period of time. So patience is, here's my definition, a loving tolerance shown towards the weakness, the failures, and the sins of others against us. Patience is the loving tolerance shown towards the weakness, failures, and sins of others against us. Um, kindness and goodness are, are very closely related. In fact, oftentimes, or, or a, a few times in the scriptures, words that are at one place translated good or goodness or in other places translated kind and kindness. So there's definitely a, an overlap there. Uh, but kindness and goodness responds to the weaknesses and the failings and the sins of others with compassion and mercy. Not retaliating in judgment or vengeance, even if that's warranted. Kindness is, is a disposition of the heart that that wants the welfare of others, and maybe we could say goodness is acting on that disposition. So kindness is this disposition. I, I, I have a loving kindness to, to those who are, who are struggling, and then I'm going to follow that up. I'm going to put my money where my mouth is, so to speak, with acts of, of um, uh, mercy to them and, and build them up. That's, that's goodness. I think it's all captured well in Paul's exhortation, Philippians 2.4. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. To fill out our definition a little more, we want to add that this looking to the interest and the well-being of others is independent of their deserving it. 
It's independent of any services in return. Kindness is to do good to others merely for the sake of doing good to others. That's it. And all this and more we see in the life of Christ. So where, where would we turn to find patience and kindness and goodness in, in, the, uh, in the life of Christ? What, what passage would we turn to to find that? Before you raise your hand and answer, I'll just say it's a trick question, right? It, any passage. This is who he is. We're talking about his heart. We're talking about his being. Uh, so really, there's, you know, you kind of just flip through the scriptures and put your finger at random, and you're going to find Jesus in his heart of, of tolerance, loving tolerance, right, towards the weaknesses of others, his kindness, his wanting their welfare. Uh, we, we can find it anywhere, really. But since we don't have time just to look through the whole Gospels accounts, uh, I'm picking two for us. Two familiar scenes where I think we see these preeminently displayed. So let's turn together. First, our first episode, we're going to look at two different episodes in the life of Christ that display, I think, these three well. The first is in Mark chapter 6, and the familiar scene of the feeding of the 5,000. So that's Mark 6 and verse 30. And I'm going to read that that section for us through verse uh, 44. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, oh, and by the way, as we're reading this, just kind of have a, a, a patience, kindness, goodness radar up. Like, look for it, right? See, see where, uh, be, be investigating to see where we uh, discover these things in Christ's words and actions. Uh, he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest for a while. For many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of time. And when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? Boy, I think it would take patience to deal with the disciples, right? Oh, boy. And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said five and two fish. And he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass, so they sat down in groups by hundreds, in groups on the, uh, a, a, wait, I'm sorry, yeah, so they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven, said a blessing, broke the loaves, gave them to the disciples, and set them before the people, and he divided the two fish among them all, and they all ate and were satisfied, and they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish, and those who ate the loaves were five thousand men. 5,000 men. So this uh, famous scene where Jesus feeds the 5,000, look at the beginning. It begins with Jesus wanting what? What's he seeking? You can answer. In the first few verses, what are, what's the plan for him and his disciples? Rest, right? They've been busy. They've been doing uh, the Lord's work for sure. They've been doing, doing ministry. 
and he wants a quiet spot to be alone and to recuperate from that exhaustive ministry. And yet the people are following him, and they're, they're persistent. They're desperate, in fact. And so what's the response of Jesus? And before you think of that, maybe you should reflect, what would your response be if that was you? If you were looking to get a little R&R, right, and uh, a moment alone, and somebody interrupts that, um, how do we respond to the inconvenient needs of others? Is anybody, anybody's need ever convenient for us? Right? <laughs> Other people's needs are always inconvenient to us. What's your response when someone knocks on the door, maybe calls you, rings you, know, rings you up, uh, just as you're about to take a long-awaited nap? Or, uh, you know, this is something my wife and I are dealing with at our stage of life. What's the response when your kids creep back into the living room after you've already read stories, tucked them in, found the stuffed animals, retucked them in, gave hugs, gave kisses, sang more songs, right? And then you're just sitting down, finally have a glass of wine to wind down, and they're back in, and, uh, Mommy, Daddy, I'm, I'm scared, or Mommy, Daddy, I'm having bad dreams. Bad dreams? You've been awake? For, well, you haven't even fallen asleep. What are you talking about? Right? What's our response? Is it, is it to respond with this idea of patience? What do we call it? Loving tolerance towards the weaknesses and the needs of others? Is it to respond with long-suffering, uh, or kindness, these are likely not the immediate reactions many of us have. If we're being honest, we recognize that our schedules, our wants, our preferences are often top priority. The welfare of others is a distant second, if it's not really a third, fourth, or fifth concern. But what does Jesus do here? Well, look at verse 43, a beautiful verse. And uh, that's, I'm sorry, that's the uh, wrong reference. Uh, verse uh, 34, not 43, 34. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them. Compassion. This is one of those great Greek words. Um, it means to be, to be moved in the guts. He felt it. In his inner being, he was moved with pity with love uh, for the needs of the people. He had compassion. He felt for them, really, truly. You know, we say that, you know, I feel for you. Jesus felt for them. He didn't turn them away, but instead he was inwardly moved so as to have something to do about it. He had compassion. In a fascinating essay entitled The Emotional Life of Our Lord, Princeton theologian B.B. Warfield points out that compassion is the emotion which is most frequently attributed to Jesus in his earthly ministry. Compassion. If you're interested to know, the Greek word is spalachna, and it means the guts. Sounds like it too, doesn't it? He was moved in his inner being. He was moved to kindness. And this kindness, I think, and this goodness takes on two aspects. He does two things in response. First, what does he do? First, he teaches them, right? So he saw the crowds, he had compassion because they were like a sheep without a shepherd. That's the end of verse 34. And he began to teach them many things. What had he been tired of from? What, what did he need a break from? Teaching. And yet this is what they need. And so this is what he gives them. He teaches. He preaches the gospel of the kingdom. Jesus understood the people's spiritual need to hear the good news was greater and more important than his 
need for rest. This is the second thing he does. He doesn't just teach them, he feeds them. He recognizes their need for food. It's a very serious need. And he meets it. Remember the scene, it takes place in the middle of nowhere. It's called a desolate place a couple of times. No gas stations nearby to run in and grab some snacks. No, uh, what do we have? What was it called? K&J's? Grocers? KJ's. KJ's, right? No KJ's. Um, No food line. So just like Kalamazoo, it's a desolate place. We don't have either of those. Uh, Whereas the disciples pragmatically think we need to wrap things up so we can get home. People can get back to, to get some food. Jesus recognizes to do that would force the people to make a decision between their spiritual need and, and their physical need, right? They would have to choose between wanting to be with their Lord and needing their bellies to be filled. And so rather than make them or force them to make that decision, he feeds them. They all ate and they were all satisfied. And so in doing that, Jesus shows that the one who meets their spiritual need is the one who will meet their every need. So he has an inward compassion for them and his compassion uh, shows forth, it pours forth in acts of kindness. And so this is the most famous miracle. I don't know if you recognize that. It's the most famous miracle in that it is the only miracle in the ministry of Jesus that's recorded in all four Gospels. The only one is the feeding of the 5,000. And it's a miracle that at its heart is about patience, kindness, and goodness. This is the heart of Christ for us. So that's one episode. One more. One more episode. And let's turn now to Matthew's Gospel in chapter 8. Another miracle, uh, this one more personal, not on a mass level, but Jesus cleansing the leper, Matthew chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. When he came down, when Jesus came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed, and Jesus said, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priests, and offer the gift that Moses commanded for proof to them. Well, there are many accounts of Jesus healing the sick and the diseased. The particular import of this one is that the man who needed healing was ceremonially unclean. He could not uh, participate in the the public worship of God's people at that time in the Old Covenant because if you had leprosy, you were to be outside of the camp. Um, And if you uh, were to get near anyone, if you were to touch them, they were to touch you, you would make them unclean. And, And then they couldn't access the worship of God. And that's everything back then. That was everything. Access to 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 um, God's worship to the temple. It was everything. Your status as a worshiper defined your status as a human being. That's how they understood these things. So we start to understand how spiritually disastrous the diagnosis of leprosy was. A leprosy is a socially shameful disease. In fact, if you contracted it when you were walking out in the, uh, you know, in the town square, you would have to say, unclean, unclean, stay away. You know, it's, it's sort of like, you know, um, uh, the, the sorts of uh, lists that you can find, uh, registries that we would have online that would let you know if there might be somebody who's dangerous living in your neighborhood. But can you imagine if that person had to walk around, any, you know, anytime they're going to the store saying, stay away from me, stay away from me, I'm, a, I'm on a registry, don't come near me. But that's how it worked back then. 
with a leper. They had to say, I'm unclean, I'm unclean. So it didn't get much worse than being a leper. But this leper in Matthew 8 knows in his heart something of the heart of Jesus. He, he just has this feeling that Jesus will welcome him. Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. What he, he certainly knows is the ability of Jesus. You can do this. You can. You can make me clean. And he's pleading then for the willingness on Jesus' part to do it. Not, not, he's not asking for the ability. You have the ability, but we have the willingness. So note two astounding things about Jesus' response. First, verse 3, what does Jesus do? What's, what, what catches you off guard based on now everything you know about leprosy? He touches him. He stretches out his hand, it says, and he touched him. Anybody else would have recoiled in fear and disgust. They would have turned and they would have run away. Why be barred from the presence of God yourself on account of somebody else's issue, right? But Jesus touches this poor individual. And so what are we learning about kindness and goodness? Kindness, goodness always turns towards those in need. It never turns away from those in need. It turns towards them. And Jesus also knew that there's no contact from any sinner that could compromise his holiness, could compromise his purity. It's the opposite. To come, so, so this is how it worked in the Old Covenant, right? If a, if a leper touched somebody else, they, that other person contracted their, their disease or their status of un, un, uncleanliness. But when you come to God and you meet with God, his holiness is contract, you contract his holiness. It overcomes your sin. It overcomes your uncleanness. We have a picture of the, the curative, sanctifying power of the gospel, right? The Jewish system at best could only protect worshipers from contracting leprosy, but Jesus Christ, love, compassion, kindness, incarnate, he can actually heal the leper. He can actually change him, so he touches him. The second thing to note about Jesus' response beyond the touch is his words. What does he say to this man, right? The man had asked, if you will. In other words, if you want, if you would have a desire, if you would be willing, if you could find it within your heart, that's what he's saying, if you could find it within your heart somewhere deep down to do this, this kindness for me. You've heard people ask these questions of others, right? Begging people, if you could just find it in your heart, if you would be willing. And Jesus says these two words, the most beautiful words, I think, in this story. I will. I want I don't have to go looking in my heart. This is my heart. You found it. This is what I'm all about. He wants to help this man. And so, again, we learn something about kindness and goodness. Real spirit-prompted kindness, the fruit of the spirit, kindness we're talking about, it desires the welfare of others. It doesn't help others begrudgingly. This is what it, it wants to do. We can do things that on the surface seem kind, but... If they're motivated by a begrudging obligation on the inside, they are not produced by the Holy Spirit. Real kindness wills. It wills. It motivates us. Drives us. And so now, as we kind of finish up uh, this morning, we've seen this now in the life of Christ, and we want to apply this now to us. We've seen that kindness doesn't turn away from those in need. It turns towards them. It doesn't do that kind of out of a sense of obligation, but out of a, a true desire. I want to do this. That's real kindness. So go and be like that. Amen. Let's go home, right? 
It's easy. Just do that. No, it's not. You might still be fine with me saying amen and go home, but you know that that's not the end of this story. That's not the end of our growth and godliness, is to just be kind. I have seen, maybe you have seen bumper stickers that say that, or maybe inside like a store window, just be kind. Kindness is everything. Phrases we hear today often. Uh, just, just go and be kind. It's, it's easy. It's everything. That's how some of us read and reflect upon these stories of Christ. Now I gotta, I gotta go and I gotta do that. Well, we've seen Jesus showing kindness by meeting physical needs, by risking social ridicule, by granting forgiveness to people who are ungrateful and evil and all the rest. We go down the list of things we've seen, we see in the life of Christ and how he shows kindness and goodness. Is that easy for us to do? If it is, then let's just go do it. But the Bible actually says it's not easy. You know, Romans chapter 3 says, no one does, do you know what it says? No one does good. Same word that's translated in the fruit of the Spirit is kindness. Same exact word. No one is kind. Nobody is naturally kind. Romans 3.12. No one does good, not even a single person, not even one. So Scripture's indictment on the human condition is that no one, not a single person, is naturally kind to others. This virtue that the world is saying is everything. Kindness is everything. Just be kind. It's easy. Just do it. Kind of like with this... Nike-like attitude. Just do it. Just be kind. Come on, okay? Just be nice. Uh, That's what the world says, and yet the Scripture says um, it's staggeringly difficult. In fact, impossible apart from God. And here's where the good news comes in. The good news is that the Bible isn't the one saying, just be kind, it's easy. The Bible doesn't give us a demand or a command that's impossible for us to keep and say, keep it, do it. That's not what the Bible does. No. Consider the examples that we've looked at about the kindness of Jesus. And if it's true that kindness is not easy or kindness is not something that we have naturally, we need to rethink how we interpret or apply these stories. Right? So let's think of just the leper, for example. How do you situate yourself in that story? What's the takeaway for you? What does that story have to do with you and me? This is how we often can interpret a story like that. Jesus cleanses somebody who's an outcast in society. He welcomes them in. He's not embarrassed. He's not ashamed to be near them, and he does something good for them. And so that must mean I need to go and find the outcasts in my life and to do something good for them and not to be ashamed of them. That's not the point of the story. The point of the story is you're the outcast. You're the leper. I'm the leper. I'm the one that nobody would have anything to do with, and yet Jesus, Jesus, Jesus comes to me. He comes to us in our need. That's the point of the story. The point of the story is not to first say, I need to be like Jesus. The point of the story is to first say, the point of the application is to first say, I've been met by Jesus. I have personally benefited from his patience, his tolerance of all my weakness, his kindness and his goodness to me. That's where we start in applying this text. I am the recipient of the heart of Christ, of the character of Christ. He's come to us. He's met our needs. He's reached out and touched us when nobody else would, when everybody else would recoil. He has willed, he's wanted our happiness when the rest of the world was consumed with their own. He has offered us forgiveness even though we've hated him and sinned against him in grievous ways. And so the point 
is to see the ways in which Jesus shows patience and kindness and goodness to us. That must be where we begin. And from there, we will find the spiritual fuel necessary to go and do that for others. Remember, we talked about, if you were here last night, we talked about how seeing Christ at the center of our sanctification will give us a better fuel for our sanctification. And this is exactly the kind of thing we mean. Right? When I fall in love with, when I embrace the reality of all that Jesus has done for me, the only response can be, I want to do that for others. You see, it, it might sound like a, a slight nuance or a subtle difference, but it, it, it actually, they're worlds apart from saying that. I, I've been embraced by Christ. I've been loved by Christ. I want to do that for others. That is a world's difference from reading this text and saying, I guess I have to go and do this too. That's my job. That's, that's kind of what's given to me. That's not how we're meant to read these texts. We see Christ, we look to Christ, and then we start to look like him. It, it, it's, it's really the only thing, the only response that can happen. When you encounter Jesus in this real way, when, when your faith is, is in this one, you will be drawn to him and you'll want to be like him. You'll say, there's nothing else I can do but to be like this one. And so we need to see that we have first benefited from the kindness of God before we show kindness to others. We can only give to others what we have first received from God. Or we could put it this way. Before the spiritual fruit of, of kindness or goodness can appear in our hearts, it first had to appear in Bethlehem. first had to come down to this earth. It had to walk this world and serve these people, live our life, die our death. And that has happened. Paul tells us that in Titus 3. Let's look there as we close. Look to Titus 3. It's a really uh, kind of breathtaking line that Paul makes here in verse uh, 4. It's talking about the incarnation, but he uses it and talks about it in terms of uh, virtue. Titus 3, 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of, our, of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. He saved us. So putting your faith in the appearance of God's virtue in the person of Jesus will produce that same virtue in your own heart. Because if you haven't done that, you're not saved. Right? But once he's appeared... We're saved when we look to him and see what he's done for us. And then now we can be patient towards others. And we can be kind and we can be good. And I don't want you to underestimate that. I don't want you to walk away from this weekend saying, well, Pastor Jonathan said, um, I don't have to do anything in the Christian life. I just got to look at Jesus. I got to meditate on Jesus. And then all of a sudden that kind of just magically makes me a better person. No, I'm telling you that in meditating upon Jesus, you will go and be a better person. You have to. This is how the spirit works. So don't underestimate these virtues uh, and the power that, that they can bring to other people. How God's spirit working in our lives can benefit other people. Uh, kindness in particular, uh, one of the most powerful tools we have in bearing witness to Christ. In the ancient church, uh, there's a theologian named Tertullian, and he records that Christians were often recognized by uh, the pagan world for their acts of kindness. That's how they, they could distinguish who the Christians were. It was their charity, their kindness towards others in need. 
And uh, the Greek word for kindness is uh, krestotes, krestotes. And a pun developed in the third century where Christians were called krestiani, not christiani. Krestiani coming from krestotes. And the pun was Christians were called Christiani, meaning the kindness people. It sounded like Christian, but they were getting at the point that Christians were these kind people. Fast forward 100 years now, we have Augustine, perhaps the most influential theologian of all time. And he recounts in his confessions that what endeared him to his mentor, uh, uh, another famous theologian, Ambrose of Milan, What endeared him to Ambrose was not simply his preaching or his teaching, but he writes this in his confessions. He says that Ambrose showed kindness to me. Wow, where would we have been these thousands of years later if Ambrose wasn't kind to Augustine? So never underestimate the powerful effect that that an act of kindness can have on someone. When we show kindness, we're showing Christ. This is his heart. This is his character. You and I, we can't save a single soul through our acts of, of uh, goodness and kindness, through our patient forbearance with people. These are all good things, but we're never going to save anybody by doing that. But when we're kind to others, we point to the one who can save and the one who does save, the one who says, I will. I will. I'm willing. I want to save. I don't desire uh, the death of the wicked. No, my, my heart's desire is to show kindness unto salvation to all who would come to me. When we are kind, we point to Jesus Christ himself. Compassionate, charitable, kind act today could open up the way for someone else to know and experience God's everlasting kindness. For this is the promise of the gospel, and we find it in Ephesians 2, that in the coming ages God will show the immeasurable riches of his gospel, of his grace, in kindness towards those who believe in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Almighty God and our Heavenly Father, we thank you that when the timing was just right, the goodness and loving kindness of our Lord and Savior appeared. And he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we can become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This and so much more you have done for us in the person of Christ. We, Lord, acknowledge we are difficult people. We are the difficult people to whom Jesus has shown patience and long-suffering, who have not threatened uh, his kindness, but only fortified it. We are the recipients of his goodness in the gospel. And there is no better response for us to say, we want to give our lives unto the Lord in these patient, kind, and, and good deeds toward those who are even difficult to us. Oh, come Holy Spirit, Bring your word to our hearts that we would be transformed to look more and more like this beautiful Savior. We pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said together, amen, amen. Thank you all for your attention.